And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Many of you may occasionally use the colloquialism that I feel blah. It's not a very technical term, right? But uh, to feel blah, I mean, we know what that means when we use it. We use it a lot in my house. Blah, to be blah, I mean, blah sort of imitates the sound of getting sick, so it's kind of self-explanatory, right? Uh, And sometimes we'll say we we feel like garbage or feel like crap, right, or whatever. It's a less common phrase in English to say I feel like vomit, but Jonah knows what that feels like now. He has a unique distinction of being, not only feeling blah, but being blah. Uh, We literally left him on the beach in a pile of goo. I would assume he neither looks nor feels his best. And yet, Jonah has been rescued, right? This, this fish, this sea monster, has been his deliverance. And as we said before, salvation often comes in unexpected and even unpleasant packaging. And it doesn't always look like salvation at, a, at first blush. Uh, for, some, you know, for instance, it is certainly ironic that we as Christians have such warm feelings about crosses, What is a cross? It's a tool of Roman execution, and a brutal one at that, right? It's kind of like the electric chair or a guillotine, and yet we festoon our churches with this image, and people will wear it around their neck, and it's strange, uh, but it's not inappropriate because this instrument of torture was the means of our deliverance. It wasn't pleasant in the moment by any stretch. It was probably the darkest moment in world history, but it was the instrument of our salvation, and Jesus knew that before he even got on the cross, right? And likewise, this fish has been God's means of saving Jonah. Of course, Jonah couldn't be sure of that at first, but now on the beach he does realize that. I'm not sure he's ready to start wearing a fish on a gold chain yet or anything like that. But (laughs) He knows now for sure that God sent the fish not only to torture him, though I think the pain and suffering were part of the gift, as it were, but it's also been to save his life. And we have now confirmation that God did hear Jonah because it's in response to Jonah's prayer that God speaks to the fish and it spits Jonah out. Now, it's interesting that we're not told where the fish spit him out. I have no insight on that question. My guess is Jonah has no idea where he is either way. It's kind of like getting off a spinning ride at an amusement park. The whole world is probably spinning for Jonah right now. I'm thinking it probably took a little while for him to get his bearings Um, it seems a likely scenario that the fish is swimming Jonah back to the eastern end of the Mediterranean, back toward Israel, back to where he started from. Uh, And I think, in a sense, God is mercifully undoing Jonah's rebellion in that sense. Uh, He's taking him to the beginning and giving him another shot, a second chance. And 
We like second chances, don't we? Uh, we all like getting them, anyway. Uh, I'm not as fond of giving them. But it makes a good story. It's uplifting. And, and it's worth noticing, as we get into this here, that, that God has not forgotten the mission. God doesn't just have the fish spit Jonah out and let him go home. He has rescued Jonah with a purpose in mind. Jonah was not saved so he could go live in retirement, having learned his lesson. God never saves you without intending also to use you. And that is why James admonishes us to show our faith by our works, right? We are saved by faith, and then we respond by living out that faith. And that's the theme today. The theme is obedience. It's much what we talked about in the Sunday school this morning, too. Jonah needs to live out his repentance and obedience. And it's not that Jonah can save himself by doing so, and he can't undo his rebellion. He needed God to rescue him from that. He can't save himself. And he can't repay God for what he's done, but he has been saved unto good works. He can't escape that. He's called to obey, as we all are. So Jonah wakes up in a pile of vomit, sick as a dog, hardly able to see straight. He's got to be a real sight. He's not very healthy right now. Uh, what he wants is a shower and a nap and a ride home and probably several weeks of convalescence. And you can picture it, that he's finally coming to, he's baking in the sun on the beach here, delirious, thirsty, hungry, and God, as if nothing at all just happened, just shows up and says the following, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. These were probably not the most welcome words he could have received at that point in time, um, again, I'm sure Jonah would like nothing more than a day or two to recover. And I, I wonder also if he was hoping that the whole Nineveh thing had blown over by now. Maybe God found somebody else for that assignment and he'll give me something. Uh, look, I learned my lesson. No harm done. Uh, we'll just leave well enough alone. You know? and, and after all, I, I noticed this too, that when he was praying, Jonah didn't vow to go to Nineveh. Uh, he promised in general, sacrifices, right? Uh, maybe he thought he was off the hook or maybe that it would slip God's mind in the meantime. Um, th there is always a small part of us, I think, that hopes God will let things slide or that he'll forget. Children use this tactic with their parents all the time. Uh, my kids are masters of this as was their father before them. Mom asks you to clean your room or practice your instrument or whatever, and you kill just enough time and distract her just long enough that she forgets. You, know, you start telling her a funny story or you do something else that she didn't ask you to do, but it's a nice enough thing and she's not going to stop you from doing it, or you go and offer to help Dad instead, right? Something. A diversion. And my kids employ this beautifully at bedtime especially. They are artists of diversion. They have been slowly extending bedtime by milliseconds at a time, but they've been doing it for years, you see. And the thing is, we're letting this happen because they're funny about it. They wear us down by making us laugh. It's really not very fair. But unlike 
Georgia and myself, God is not weak-willed, and he remembers what he said. Sometimes that's a really encouraging fact, and sometimes it's kind of intimidating and scary. Uh, We want him to remember his blessings and his promises, but he also remembers what he told us to do. So after everything that's happened, he still expects obedience out of Jonah. He hasn't let this whole Nineveh thing go. And to emphasize that, it's not even a new command, really. He doesn't give Jonah a different task. He doesn't do something to shake things up. He doesn't make it easier. He doesn't make it any harder. He simply restates the original command almost verbatim from chapter 1. Again, it's almost like God pretends nothing happened in the interim. He doesn't move the goalpost. God is the same regardless of what Jonah has been through in the last few days. Now, I think it would be completely rational, humanly speaking, for Jonah to look at God and say, like, really? Like, you do realize what I've been through. I I can appreciate, don't get me wrong, I know I had it coming and everything else, but look, I I look and smell terrible. And uh, I can barely see straight. I'm in no condition to travel. Uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go, but I'm not at my best right now. I can't give this mission my A game at the present time, Lord. It's bad timing. It would be best if we gave it a few days or, or maybe weeks. And that's what many of us would be tempted to say. Maybe we do in our own world. We can rationalize delayed obedience in any circumstance, but Jonah's had a rough three days, rougher than probably we have had. But the memory of the spanking, as it were, is rather fresh in Jonah's mind, so he does a rational thing. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. You better believe he went to Nineveh. God's had enough of him wasting time. It's time to get going. Pain is a good teacher. We remember our lessons much better when they come with a sting. It's kind of like when you burn yourself on the stove as a kid. You don't repeat that quickly. When I was in a car accident, and this was about 10 years ago, um, I had no seatbelt on. Don't tell the cops about that. But I was only going a short distance, you know. Shouldn't have mattered, right? Uh, I broke my knee in that accident, and I I hit my head pretty good. I probably had a concussion, though they didn't diagnose such. And the accident wasn't technically my fault, but you better believe I started wearing a seatbelt after that most of the time. I always wear it now just to stop the annoying beeping in the cars. Uh, But the accident was my initial wake-up call. You don't forget it right away. And Jonah just received a pretty epic wake-up call, this divine spanking, if you will, and as he sits there, you know, kissing the sand, feeling the sun, breathing deeply for the first time in days, washing off the filth and the surf, thinking about where he can get a good meal and maybe a stiff drink, God shows up and says, Jonah, why don't you go to Nineveh now? And you better believe he gets going. Obedience is easier when we understand the consequences of disobedience. And two seconds after a spanking is when we're most likely to obey. It's not a distant memory for Jonah. God doesn't even have to say, go to Nineveh or else. 
No threats, no don't make me repeat myself, Jonah, no counting to ten, nothing like that. It's just like, hey, Jonah, why don't you go to Nineveh? And Jonah gets up and he goes to Nineveh. And it stands out in a literary sense because God has not spoken audibly in, in the text here since the beginning of the book. The only lines of dialogue we've gotten from God so far has been his first command to Jonah and his second command to Jonah. God has been very active, but he's not been very verbal. He's the strong, silent type in the book so far. And I think he's often like that in life. A little less talk and a lot more action. But he has a way of making himself clear. So God sends Jonah the second time. Jonah hops to it. He's probably still not excited about it, but he gets credit for doing the right thing, finally. Obedience is not often a pleasure, especially at first. But obeying only when you feel like it wouldn't be real obedience. I've sometimes thought about this, but it'd be nice, you know, if God would just ask us to do things that we were already thinking of doing. <laughs> if you open the heavens like, Matt, take a nap. <laughs> Matt, go on vacation. Matt, eat a steak. <laughs> Good ideas, Lord. I love that. Love your thinking. But if God is always echoing your thoughts, that's probably not God talking. Obedience requires us conforming our behavior to his commands. Not because it feels good, but because he is holy and we are not, and we are obligated to obey him because he's our creator. Jonah is learning this the hard way. So he goes to Nineveh right away. He finally responds to God's word with immediate obedience. Maybe not enthusiastic, but more on that in a moment. Now let's talk about Nineveh a bit. We did talk about it a little before when we first started the book. We talked about how it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. We talked a little bit about their relations with Israel, kind of tense. Uh, but we haven't really talked about the city itself or Jonah's specific mission. And the first thing that we see is that Jonah tells us that Nineveh is huge. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, by today's standards, it might not sound that impressive to say that Nineveh had a population about roughly what Allentown's is today. We don't think of Allentown as a, a, a huge town. It's a big little town, right? Kind of like Narberth, right? My father-in-law knows that. Uh, but that's not that impressive by today's standards. But it was pretty much the largest city that we know of in the world at this time. And Jonah tells us it was a three-day walk to get across it. Uh, more to the point, it's also the seat of power for the largest empire in this part of the world. So this is like coming like from, I don't know, El Salvador and going to Washington, D.C. Or the equivalent of going from Penn Argel to New York City. Like, you know, it's a big deal. It would be an intimidating scene for Jonah as a country bumpkin from the wine country of Galilee. We don't know if Jonah even knows the language. We know that in uh, Nineveh they spoke Akkadian which is related to Aramaic, which is even more distantly related to Hebrew. So maybe he could figure out a few words, but he would certainly have been recognized as a foreigner. The accent would give it all away. And he's probably going to be wearing less than fashionable clothes in a city like that. So everyone's going to know he's an outsider. So what does obedience look like in this instance? How can Jonah reach these people? They're so different. that They're going to be wealthier, sophisticated people, and... Not only is Jonah just some schlub from a little country that Nineveh is probably planning to conquer eventually, 
He also believes in a foreign god that they've never heard of or thought about seriously, at least, and the messenger himself is a complete stranger. How do you connect with people like that? Missionaries sometimes spend years studying their host country. You don't just walk in, right? You, You study the languages, the culture, the customs. You make plans. And after you do that, You go and live there, right? Meaning you make a long-term commitment. And you do that so that you can live life with the locals and establish relationships. And once you have friendships and relationships developed, then you can sort of sow seeds of faith, right? And it takes time. And it takes commitment. And a love for the people that you're trying to reach. It requires tact and sensitivity and clarity. Jonah does none of that. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Period. I'm not an expert evangelist. But this doesn't seem like a great method. Even like the Mormons know that you have to kind of engage in conversation, right? Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses go door to door and they try to make their case, right? Jonah's method actually reminds me more so of, I used to see this down in Philly, if you've ever seen the black Hebrew Israelites, um, you would see them near public transportation hubs and they they typically, they would wear funny costumes, kind of like if you crossed Pharisees with the mummers, you know, it's like vaguely Old Testament Jewish, but like with a lot of sequins. And... um, They like to stand on corners with a PA system and just yell at everybody. And that's kind of like Jonah here. And Jonah also reminds me somewhat of the Willard preacher at Penn State. Uh, When I was a student there, and maybe George remembers this, I don't recall if I ever took her over to see this spectacle, but the the Willard preacher was a staple on that campus for, for many years. Maybe he still is for all I know. Uh, but he predated me, too. Uh, and he was, I think he was Eastern Orthodox, but uh, his main job, apparently, was to stand in front of Willard Hall. This is why we called him the Willard Preacher, and basically stand there at the steps and just tell all the students that they were going to hell. And he would dedicate, and he'd be there for three hours, like every afternoon, and he would be there for like an entire day. He would dedicate to just condemning the Roman Catholics. And then he would come back the next day, and it would be the Protestants' turn. And then the next day he would like just pick like miscellaneous sins and just hammer away on that for, for three hours and whatever. And people would stop and listen and sometimes laugh and sometimes argue. One day I, I did make the mistake of engaging in debate. I ended up surrounded by his little posse of disciples. Um, and, and I guess you could say that the Willard preacher had a small following, but it was kind of small and it took him years to, to get to that point. Those are not very effective missions. But compared to Jonah, the Willard preacher looks like Billy Graham. He, he breaks all missionary guidelines. He doesn't even put in a week at Nineveh, let alone, let alone years. He doesn't even commit to the three full days so that the whole city can hear the message. Jonah does a single day's journey. He goes a third of the way in and then leaves. And what does Jonah preach? God's love and forgiveness? The Veggie Tales version is sort of like, be nice to each other, stop being mean. Uh, 
Does he give them the social gospel? Hey, you guys ought to feed the poor and reform your prisons and institute better health care. Like, no. He doesn't do any of that. He, he comes in and he preaches judgment, which by today's standard, that's like the last thing you're ever supposed to do. He, he's, he's insensitive and judgmental and he's harsh. And the only snippet of his sermon that we get here doesn't even explain why. He doesn't even give them a reason for the judgment and he offers them no method for escaping it. There's no good news. All he says is, you guys are going to get it. 40 days, that's what you got. Now, that might be all that God gave Jonah to say. After all, God had told Jonah in verse 1, right, you know, give them the message I'm going to give you. Uh, so it's possible that Jonah is only doing exactly what he was told. In fact, it's possible that he almost looked forward to delivering this message once he got it. Like maybe when he heard that the message was fire and brimstone, he got excited. Like, oh, this message is a message of doom, Jonah comes you know, from the... Okay, Lord, I'm on that. I like that one. But the fact that he only goes a day's distance, and the fact that that detail is given to us side by side with the statistic that says the city was a three-day walk, says to me that this was still Jonah's minimum effort. It looks like an intentionally ineffective plan. It's worse than leaving a pile of chick tracks at the local cafe. He's obeying God's command to the letter and no more than that. Now you tell me, do you think that Jonah's preaching comes from a place of love? I don't think so. I think this sermon comes naturally to Jonah because he wants Nineveh destroyed. He is happy to see justice done here. And you can just picture him saying these words with a smug sense of self-satisfaction. It feels good to yell at people sometimes. And there's only two rational ways to respond to such a message. One is that you ignore him like those weirdos in Philly. Or you could arrest him or eventually kill him for disturbing the peace. Maybe that's another reason he wanted to get out of there. But there's another possibility that no rational person would have considered. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, there's no way on earth Jonah saw that coming. I don't think Jonah even wanted to see that coming. But the word of God is powerful. And that's sort of the key to this passage. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about the foolishness of preaching. And he says that because the, the gospel message itself is, is folly to the natural man. But it's also true that the very act of preaching is foolish on a natural level. I confess to you, I, I stand up here every week to preach and I'm amazed by what God does with that. Uh, and, and I approach this pulpit with fear and trepidation and a lot of nerves still this many years in. And uh, I come up here and I say a bunch of stuff. And I'm never convinced that I'm doing it right. And I make mistakes and I misstate things. And sometimes I miss the critical points in the passage. And yet God has chosen this as his way of discipling his people and spreading the gospel. 
I don't really get it. But he works through preaching. God has chosen to use lowly humans to spread the gospel to other lowly humans. And it's funny because in chapter 2, there at the end of chapter 2 and verse 10, we're told that God talks directly to the fish. And the fish listens, which you would expect. Well, presumably God could have spoken directly to the people of Nineveh. Just as he could speak directly to the people of Allentown. But that's not how he rolls. He chooses to use human messengers. Salvation belongs to him, and yet he chooses to share that salvation through the foolishness of preaching. And it's hard to picture a bigger fool than Jonah. Can God use bad preachers? How about loveless preachers? How about preachers that have no interest in discipleship? Can God use preachers who aren't even really trying? I hope so. I think he does. God could do this without us. And in natural terms, I can't help but think he'd be better off if he did. But he chooses to employ human agency, even people like Jonah. Pardon me. I don't really get it as a strategy, but somehow, even with all the stumbling and all the failures, what they ultimately hear in Nineveh is God. Because you'll notice that it doesn't say that they believed Jonah. What does it say? The people of Nineveh believed God. That's an incredible statement. In spite of the messenger, what is received on the other end is nothing less than God's word. And that word has power. Now, next week we'll examine the repentance of Nineveh more closely. And I'm going to want to talk about what revival actually looks like. But for today, I want you to see that how revival starts is it always starts with God's word, even as it is shared imperfectly by his servants. Jonah is a terrible person. His heart is not in the right place. His methods are terrible. His message is harsh, cruel, judgmental, and unclear. Which means that even Jonah's obedience is rather ugly. And yet God is at work, and the message is received. Our obedience is often ugly, too. I don't think any of us preaches or shares our faith perfectly. We are very flawed messengers. We have a hard time loving people. We're tempted to argue and condemn. Uh, We get impatient. We aren't always all that committed to the mission. And sometimes we get our facts wrong and we get confused and we're not exactly bold and we're afraid of the backlash because people might hate us for sharing our faith and we don't like that. I think we have a lot of fear in this culture for people who live in a free country. But nevertheless, God's word has power. When we obey the Great Commission, things happen. And Jonah proves that God can use any messenger even when we're reluctant and even if our motives aren't pure. There's encouragement there, but there's also a challenge. 
How does LVPC compare with Jonah? How eager are we to reach this city? Are we eager to preach doom to the world around us? Would we rather let them die in darkness? Do we have a game plan for actually making disciples in this city? How do you individually compare with Jonah? Because I think if the only reason you've avoided Jonah's mistakes and to be like, well, at least I haven't done that, if the reason for that is that you haven't even tried, that's not exactly a comparison to be proud of. Jonah's not a discipler. He doesn't do discipleship at all. God makes disciples anyway. But Jonah's not our role model, is he? Jesus is. Only Jesus obeyed his father in everything perfectly with pure motives, and he came to seek and save the lost. And he did it far longer than just a day. And his audience was more hostile than Nineveh was. And it cost him his life eventually, but he came anyway because God so loved the world. Just as he chose to love undeserving Nineveh. It's interesting, the footnote there says the Hebrew in this original text here says that Nineveh was a great city to God. Maybe not to us and you know our modern eyes and certainly not to Jonah, but the point is that Nineveh mattered to God. Allentown matters to God. Bethlehem matters to God. The Lehigh Valley matters to God. Salvation belongs to him, and he has a mission to save sinners. That's why he sent Jesus. That's also why we're here. Jesus was a perfect missionary, a far better model than Jonah. So as we think about obedience and what this looks like, especially in terms of the Great Commission, and particularly here where God has put us, if you find that your evangelism is weak, imitate Jesus and not Jonah. I hope that's obvious by now. But also take comfort in the knowledge that God can use the Jonas too. Even if we don't obey with a pure heart, God can use even delayed obedience and mixed motives. And your stumbling and fumbling words and even your unloving, angry outbursts will become God's word in the ears of those that he has prepared to receive him. Because it's the spirit and not us who makes it happen. Salvation belongs to the Lord, which means we're playing with house money, and that's very good news. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jonah's obedience in going to Nineveh. Lord, it's an ugly obedience. But we thank you that you take even minuscule and ugly obedience and can turn it into revivals. We thank you that your word has power when we are pathetic. That you can use our imperfect evangelism and loveless words even and still <coughs> pierce the hearts that you are preparing. Lord, teach us to imitate Christ in our evangelism and in our love. 
but to take comfort in the story of Jonah at the same time. Lord, and give us a heart for this city that Jonah did not have for Nineveh. Give us the love of Christ for the place that you have put us. Give us a heart for this mission. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures.